0: You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. I am Chance Solempeifer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here to talk about the larger universe inspired by, I'm going to argue, one of the great American films ever, one of my favorite films, Silence of the Lambs, is 30 years old on Valentine's Day, Um, which, I don't know, does that put any weird Valentine's Day gift ideas in your head, Noah?
1: It is interesting that the movie was released this time of year. Sure. Sure. Uh, Considering how much of a critical success it is. You'd think it would have been released closer to award season.
0: Oh, I'm gonna talk about it, baby. Um so yeah really jazzed to, to talk Silence of the Lambs and uh, a bunch of the other Hannibal Lecter movies today. We're going to do Hannibal, Manhunter, and Hannibal Rising. If you want to hear us talk about Brett Ratner's Red Dragon for some reason, you can go <laughs> back into the archives to an episode called Seemingly Unnecessary Prequels. Um, Noah. Yes? So we've elected to not do like a straight up silence of the lambs review because it's, I think unimpeachably great. It's probably one of my 10 favorite movies ever, like straight out reviewing. It doesn't seem like the way to go. I prepared some, like some things I think that are great about it that I just want to talk about at the beginning. But do you, do you want to lead with anything regarding silence of the lambs?
1: Why don't you get us into it with your thoughts? Good
0: morning. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you?
1: You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? I am, yes. May I see your credentials? Certainly. Closer, please. Closer.
0: Okay, so we're 30 years on from this canonical serial killer movie directed by Jonathan Demme, starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins and Ted Levine. Um, it's a classic. But I want to talk about some of the the reasons I think that's so and some of the interesting dimensions. Number one, and you just respond to these in any way you like, as you always do, Okay. I think like so many great movies and it really shows up watching this category, which like these movies as a cluster and as books too are kind of messy, Uh, no jokes intended, um, but like all great movies, Silence of the Lambs, there are parts of it that just feel like an accident. Like, Jonathan Demme doesn't remotely direct the way Thomas Harris writes. He didn't even like the story when he read it. He thought it was gross and exploited him. It's not his kind of movie. Clarice Starling, who's so important, is like a constantly sort of sexualized character in a completely asexual performance. In the midst of a career slump coming out of the 80s, Anthony Hopkins decides to basically play Satan in a movie that's otherwise full of like very real-seeming fallible people. And Tak Fujimoto, the cinematographer, demi-collaborator extraordinaire, shoots a a thriller like an art film. And there's just so many things there that are not replicable, you know, when you do it times two, three, and four.
1: Yes, I definitely agree with you that... Capturing lightning in a bottle twice is quite difficult. I would also say that none of the movies after this or before this uh, figured out how to use Hannibal Lecter the right way. And the right way to use him mm. is not the A plot, but like having a an important B plot where he gets to like do his thing and eat a couple of people and then like saunter off just as quickly as he emerged snacks. And yeah, he snacks, you watch him have a couple (laughs) conversations and a snack and then he's gone. And then we're back to the, the Buffalo bill or the tooth fairy or whomever. But if you use him too much, he's just not because he's so blanket evil, He's just not that interesting. And if you use him too little, it's
0: like, who the hell was Brian Cox? Right. We need some some liver and some fava beans. It can't just be all Chianti.
1: Yeah, it can't be all Chianti. You can't
0: just drink your dinner. Um, That's this right. Is, this is a great point because the famous piece of trivia about Silence of the Lambs is that Anthony Hopkins only on screen for 16 minutes, wins Best Actor. That's a total... Uh, Record for shortest amount of time This has always been framed Mostly as a compliment to the power of Anthony Hopkins I think what you're saying And I would agree is that it's a compliment To the movie Like Keep him in the box
1: for sure. Keep him in the box and then allow a moment of surprise for him because I think what's great about the Hopkins performance is that not only can he act literally outside of a box that he's stuck in, but he also has a, like a few moments of physical acting where he's just like – Like exerting this weird, creepy old man strength, like against a dozen guys. Uh, And it's really good uh, to see that. I mean, just the way Demi chooses to shoot that as well, where he's like huge in the frame and always sort of like looking down at you. Uh, Yeah. It's a it's I think it's it's it, this is the, one of the cases where the movie makes the performance look better
0: totally seared into my mind forever is the scene in the art museum where he bludgeons Charles Napier to death. Yes where he and just like
1: kind of flicks his wrist with this, he looks like this a maestro. Billy club and yes, absolutely. He does it with such gusto and such grace that he just dispatches with these people right and then the horrible thing with the face. Um, right. dude has a thing about faces,
0: sure. Um, okay. Another point. Silence of the Lambs is like a master. I think of like four different genres. You could watch it as a drama, a thriller, a horror movie or a crime movie. And I think it succeeds very well in all four boxes. And yet the movie itself is so unselfconscious conscious. About those boundaries, it's always just trying to show you what it thinks is the most interesting, whether that's some guy's intestines or a girl enjoying a choice Tom Petty song or Clarice Starling just trying to keep her composure amid some Quantico bullshit.
1: Yes. No, I think that's – the fact that it's able to be versed in all the genres it endeavors to be uh, is, is a miracle. Uh, and I think it is – it's like an A-plus in all the categories. Uh, and definitely like a genre reset sort of in that early 90s. Like what are adult crime movies going to look like from now on? Like how violent can they be? How much gore can we show? But also like are these still movies that can win awards?
0: Yeah, the totally anomalous situation that you referred to earlier is that it was released 12 months before it went on to sweep the Oscars, which is unheard of. Um, yeah, it's a real e- crash move. In our lifetimes. <laughs> was crash released super early? Oh, yeah. Okay. That
1: That's was a- part of like the narrative around its award winningness was that like
0: people had forgotten it, but now it's back. <laughs> Well, with Silence of the Lambs, I think it speaks to its obsessiveness and its ability to overcome some of the genre snobbery that typically overtakes yeah. the Oscars. Did you read at all about numbers for this movie? Box office numbers, indeed. No, tell me or are you asking? Oh, I,
1: I I was just curious.
0: Oh, I'm pretty. Sh- I think it was a huge hit. Um, budget was 19 million. Total gross was 270 million. I love
1: that. (laughs) And that's, I mean, that speaks to, you know, what was miraculous about a movie like this is that critical success, box office success, launches this huge franchise and a franchise that like didn't quite get off the ground with an earlier film.
0: Right. With Michael Mann's Manhunter, which we're going to talk about. Um, In terms of its influence, which you were referring to. Over the next 30 years, it profoundly affects the way serial killer and psychopath movies happened, And I would argue you can see its inspiration through, especially the David Fincher show Mindhunter. I think you can see it in The Dark Knight in Heath Ledger's performance. You can definitely see it in True Detective. You can see it, uh, there's a lot of it in Luther, that BBC show. There's a lot of it in Zodiac. Um, I think the biggest debt, though, that is owed to Silence of the Lambs, ironically, is in True Crime. It's the feeling you get from staring in at Hannibal Lecter or glimpsing these things and being like, how could this guy do this? This idea that it puts you in the sort of armchair psychologist, morbid curiosity role, I think is what people go searching for through endless mountains of true crime content today.
1: Right. Yeah, I think it's so interesting too in the context of movie monster Uh, history, too, where you're coming out of, you know, a time where you had, like, alien and predator with just these, like, killing machines who, like, don't have any psychology, Terminator. And now it's, like, flipping the script on that where the only real terror is not the physical presence but the psychology behind it, the willingness as a human to, like, play with powers one shouldn't or whatever. And I think that is also sort of a, a fascinating, like just Lecter as a character, as a, a movie monster is fascinating.
0: I think my last big one, one of the great things about Silence of the Lambs is it really succeeds in a dance between letting you be uh, a voyeur, seeing things that you should not see and still letting you play a detective, which kind of breaks the rules of the detective genre in some ways. Um, Cause it's it's giving you things that aren't clues. They're just um, you know horror shows that that raise the stakes. Um, but Clarice Starling is part a huge part of the reason why Silence of the Lambs is so great. And I think what's so great about that character is that she has no she has no armor. She's kind of like a pure light in her want to do this but she's also totally like a pawn of this corrupt law enforcement organization she doesn't have any real power or seniority to hide behind she doesn't really even have the trappings of her trauma that Lecter is trying to excavate there's no scene where she like looks at a bunch of pictures of her dad and you're like oh yeah this is a wounded person or you know drinks to excess um She is sort of pure responsiveness, pure drive, pure intelligence. I would argue that she is the true detective.
1: Yes. And I think her only burden is the fact that she knows, she has like the cynicism to know, or maybe the wisdom to know that when she's at the moment where she has to make that moral choice the system is not going to reward her for that even though it is the right choice mm-hmm. you know whether i mean we'll get into a little bit with um with hannibal um the idea of you know when do you throw the cuffs on the guy like when are you putting right. yourself in physical danger to catch the bad dude and i think in this one it's just that final sequence of her going into the house like knowing full well if she doesn't get the jump on this guy and go forward then You know, it's over, right? And then literally watching her fumble in the dark to put it together.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really incredible use of Jodie Foster, who is, I I think, such a strange movie star, and someone whose like career is just full of these bizarre uses of Jodie Foster. (laughs) And Silence of the Lambs just finds it somehow.
1: Yeah, there's something pure about her. Like, I mean, it harkens back to her role in Taxi Driver, where she like plays this this flower sort of sprouting out of the crack in the concrete, uh, and seemingly have this this unshakable moral code that she'll be okay if just like the things around her fall into place.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's what I have prepped on Silence of the Lambs. You got anything else?
1: No, I mean I agree with you that this is canonical good good uh something we could potentially pull a line from in our ratings explainer sure sure and yeah a movie that's not so creepy as to be unrewatchable and a movie that is you know holds up technically in a way that yeah it's a it's a fun one to to return to
0: okay should we get into um movies that are more i don't know shall we say varied to discuss for sure, I would love nothing more. Mind the sequels, please. Um, what are we? St- are we starting with Manhunter or Hannibal? What are we doing? Yeah, let's start with
1: Manhunter.
0: Fun. So th- it's
1: 1986. Silence of the Lambs hasn't come out yet. Nobody <laughs> knows who the hell uh, Hannibal Lecter is, except for the people who have read Thomas Harris' best-selling novel. Uh, red, red dragon, dragon which came out which in is 80. actually where the series begins which is weird to me
0: it's so funny that i guess we'll go right back to talking about silence of the lambs but it's just like everyone's second try at basically the same story right it's just like a different cop who's like i wonder if hannibal lecter can help me with this like it's even thomas harris's second try
1: Absolutely, yeah, which is so funny. Um, but this one is former FBI profiler Will Graham returns to service to pursue a deranged serial killer named the Tooth Fairy by the media. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's essentially the same premise as uh, Silence of the Lambs, person out of their depth. This one for sort of, I mean, equal trauma, but more in like a I've been here a thousand times kind right. of way. Right, right. Uh, and I brushed a little too close last time. Uh, but still it's like, oh, we gotta go check in with Hannibal Lecter to have us figure out who this killer guy is before he strikes again. Um, and this time it's CSI's William Peterson as Will Graham, who will be played by Edward Norton, who will then be played by Hugh Dancy right. <laughs> uh, in the Hannibal TV show, which we're not talking about, but could be an interesting side pod. Sure.
0: Intruder entered through the kitchen sliding door.
1: Nationwide victims. Yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI.
0: One killer. This is what the subject's teeth look like. And Manhunter is directed by the great Michael Mann. Um, Written and directed by,
1: adapted and directed by the great Michael Mann.
0: Who is... uh, Hot off like Miami Vice at this point, and boy, can you feel it!
1: Boy, can you feel it in every moment?
0: <laughs> yeah, he's just this is like, I think, like, kind of like a pinnacle of early man. He's made Thief, and you can feel some of that too in here, but he hasn't. Have you seen it. Thief? I have. Thief is incredible, he's pretty good, <laughs> <laughs> but he's so like at this point. I mean, Michael Mann has never been great with what. You and I would call feelings, um, but he hates feelings, especially in the '80s, which is what makes this movie so interesting. Um, not to just knock down Brett Ratner's Red Dragon for a second, but I would argue that Ray Fiennes and Ed Norton are better pound for pound actors than William Peterson and Tom Noonan. But th- the William Peterson and Tom Noonan performances in Manhunter are so in concert with what man is trying to do in terms of style and repression, that they work so much better.
1: 100%. uh, And they work better off of each other and as just like characters on screen. I think they're definitely more formed in this one and weirder, which is I think good. Yeah. Um I think the what holds William Peterson back is just like the just the weight of these these mod like these inter- external monologues that he's giving to himself when he's like, you fucker. Like what are you trying? You were sitting in this tree, you piece of shit, and you were watching them. And like if you've seen the the TV show uh Hannibal, you'll yeah. like remember this moment when Will Graham kind of like everything slows down a little bit and he's like kind of voiceovering to himself like trying to get in the mind of the of the killer. But man doesn't really approach it that sort of like, let's break it down moment to moment here. He's really just like he pulls in the camera tight and he's just like say these like weird angry phrases as you look at a piece
0: of evidence off screen the first like 12 minutes of this movie is just like william peterson talking to himself basically um i i would argue that as you already made fun of he's not great when he like gets mad um because that emotional explosion is sort of beyond him and beyond the movie he's very good when he's playing it like super low-key with these rhetorical questions like when he's just like were you dreaming or later on when he starts to call yes. it, when he starts to call him my man, like that's a really effective way of like not getting super bogged down in the, you know, the heightened symbolism of the detective being the shadow figure of the murderer, but just having Will Graham be creepy by being like, What were you doing here, my man? Yes.
1: They almost have like a friendly rapport by the ends. And that's kind of a, a fun thing. But, yeah, I think he's, he plays that subdued, methodical, like, piecing things together stuff. I mean, the whole thing is a, an audition for, you know, doing 200 episodes of CSI. Right. And he's, like, really good at, like, having the, the pieces, you know, connect in his head. And he's, like, you can see him working it out. Like, when he works out that, you know, not to spoil it, but that Francis Dollarhide works at a film development company,
0: uh, he's
1: just, like, he's
0: into it. Red Dragon, which I which I read in preparation for this, um, has all the same problems as the 2002 whatever Ratner Red Dragon movie, which is like it's so obsessed with Francis Dollarhide's like this making him this abused like sexual like piss monster. Um, <laughs> and Michael, it's so funny that Michael Mann gets in here and it's just like madam. Ah, I don't really need the psychological part that much I'm like he's In in a way I don't mean this as an insult He is a superficial filmmaker And one of the very best And therefore he has a great sense of like What will look good on screen There's a thing in the book where Dollar Hyde goes And eats William Blake's painting That looks stupid if you have it on screen So man doesn't put it in There's a thing where we made fun of this In the other movie where Dollar Hyde There's a fifth act to the movie where he comes back Man's like that's not really how you make an action movie. I'm not putting that part in. The omissions are great.
1: Yes, but I think the criminal omission is, and I mean, you'll probably guess it from the fact that we haven't brought him up yet, but where the hell is uh, Hannibal Lecter? Sure. <laughs> so you really, in this one, only have the two scenes. In this one, it's played by Brian Cox, who's like, again, an incredible British actor uh, who can take on this role and kill it. But... Um, but in this one, as I was sort of alluding to at the front, he doesn't have any time to like eat anyone.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know I mean, he's gotta eat somebody. He's Hannibal the cannibal. Guy's he's eat. not he, guy's gotta eat. He's gotta have a snack uh, and there's no snack one in this one. and he kind of just like disappears and then they never talk about him again after the after the phone call sequence.
0: That, that is a strange choice where it's just like the, the fear. Generated by Lecter you would think Would be one of the final Notes of the movie and it's weird that he Is just kind of absent I think that Cox Performance is really interesting because um, he You know Anthony Hopkins Is acting in a covetous Way like everything he does you're like oh He wants to eat this person um And Brian Cox plays Lecter like a Reptile it's like his blood Is like 30 degrees or something Um just got these big dead eyes. His mouth is always open, like he's making fun of the idea of thinking really hard. It's a fascinating performance that, yeah, I would agree. Really yes. I think the movie doesn't really know how to iconicize. That's the same atrocious aftershave you wore in court three years ago. Yeah, I keep getting it for Christmas. <sighs> Did you get my card? I got it, thank you. And how's Officer Stewart? The one who was first to see my basement. Stuart's fine. Emotional problems I here. Do you have any problems, Will? No.
1: No. Of course you don't. <laughs> I'm glad you came. <sighs> My callers are mostly clinical psychologists from Cornfield University somewhere.
0: Second-rater's the lot. Dr. Bloom showed me your article on surgical addiction in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. And? Very interesting. Even to a layman. I want you to help me, Dr. Lecter. Yes. I thought so. It's about Atlanta and Birmingham. Yes. You read about it? In the papers. I don't tear out the articles. I wouldn't want them
1: to think I was dwelling on anything. Oh, they do it doesn't give him a physical performance. I mean, it doesn't know that the Hannibal Lecter like, character <laughs> is the reason we're here. It That's doesn't true. know we're in a podcast in the future. That's um, it. That's, that's it. Uh, You know, and he does have his funny, uh, you know, playing with the phone gambit there. But I think the other missing piece, too, is what's so interesting about uh, the Hannibal Lecter character is the real crime people commit that allows them to be eaten by him morally is that they are rude to him. And, like, nobody's that's really that rude to him gets eaten in this one. And I think that's kind of, like, what's funny about you like the Lecter thing. You like that thing? thing? Well, I think the movies all kind of have to make the choice of whether there's such thing as, like, a blameless victim. Especially when it comes to Lecter. Because he does have, like, a weird moral code. Like, they have to make Chilton so bad so Lecter can, like seek his revenge at the end. You know, they have to make somebody like fuck with him when he's in the museum, you know, so it can justify the fact that this guy's face is going to get fucking torn off, you know, and this one doesn't really trade in that moralizing for better or worse. Uh, but it's good to see, I think in a Hollywood way, you kind of have to see like, well, here's the bad, bad guy. And then here's the guy who like, at least like plays by a certain set of rules
0: i yeah i know what you're saying i think that get that gets a little ridiculous the further down the road oh it gets. you can't
1: take it to 11 you have to like simmer it like a three or a four on that kind of thing but yeah it's some totally the, absent here
0: some of the later lector moves are like he's not even that bad of a guy he'll only do bad stuff if you fuck with him <laughs> it's like we can't That's do true. we can't have come on <laughs> He'll
1: only make you eat your own brain if you've committed flagrant, like, office sexual harassment. Right, which is ridiculous. Um, this one also, I think, has a, an inherent watchability because it's not so fucking gory. Yeah. I think the other movies, especially when they figure out, like, oh, people like gore, mm-hmm. you know, let's disembowel someone. Uh, this one doesn't really do that. I mean, there's like a pretty intense shootout at the ends. Yeah. Uh, which we can discuss, but yes. there's no real, like, people losing appendages or like getting opened up or getting eaten.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Noonan and the and the shootout. I think he's you you know Tom Noonan from like Last Action Hero, and yes, he's the voice of all the men in ano- Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa. Uh, one thing about Tom Noonan <laughs> is that like. He has like blonde white hair and he's bald and he's like six foot seven. So there are like times yeah. in this movie, it, as he's wearing these like preposterous like purple leopard colored like eighties shirts, where he just looks like this, this ghoul, this big white Babadook <laughs> in the background of like <laughs> these frames, which is so cool and weird. He is a big white Babadook. Um, but he also I this is the thing with this movie, he also just seems like a man, which is like, what's so creepy about Manhunter when it's working well is like, this is not, the Red Dragon is not succeeding in becoming William Blake's demon nightmare. Like, we don't believe that, do we, movie? He's just a guy. Um, And I love the way this one keeps it simple while still kind of mythologizing him a little bit with like will graham you better get some of these super powered fucking bullets for the end because like this guy's big
1: <laughs> he is a he's a big guy you need the elephant gun to take him down
0: i um, forget about all the one hand shotgun work
1: oh my god yeah he's he's throwing that thing around like a like a pool cue it's incredible um, yeah, I think one of the things I remembered resenting about the Brett Ratner Red Dragon is exactly what you're talking about this this idea of like, is Ray Fiennes becoming a dragon? <laughs> it's like no, <laughs> like he's not becoming a dragon. Keep like he's just he's nuts. Movie. Yeah, he's just nuts. And like I think this movie kind of uh, you know relishes in how goofy some of his notes are. You know, and it never really takes him that seriously, like as a like a, a being of some other world. It's always just like, this is a criminal we're trying to hunt down. These are the clues we have. It's working the case, you know, right. it's working the evidence. And I think I appreciate it's a little like utilitarian, but I think I appreciate that filmmaking style more than the but is it also magic? It's
0: like right. no, it's not also
1: magic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's a funny um Tom Noonan has said that they, there's the famous Red, this killer has the Red Dragon William Blake tattoo across his like chest and back. Um, And they shot all the scenes with that. And then Michael Mann was just like, eh, it's too much. Takes away from the character. (laughs) So there's these awesome still shots you can find on the internet of Tom Noonan with the fucking pantyhoe on his head and the Red Dragon tattoo, but they're not in the movie. I also just love Tom Noonan's like very soft voice is another thing that just makes him feel real and it's kind of incongruous, but in a human way. Um, What about the Iron Butterfly song and the glass breaking at the end? Like, how wonderfully Miami Vice is that shit?
1: It's really good. Um, I think the only thing that I was like, come on, Michael Mann, was when... uh, Graham goes through the window in slow motion. Nope.
0: It's like, loved it.
1: You couldn't have gone like leg first into the door. Like, why did you have to go through the glass window? You're, you're limping
0: in at that point. Look cool unless you go head first through the window.
1: It definitely looks cool, but it's kind of where the movie jumps the shark a little bit in terms of like, this is realistic, like how mm. cops chase people down. Not, uh, a,
0: not a problem for me. Not a problem for chance. <laughs> what I loved is that. In Ugata Devita, that song is so is so long. <laughs> in <Agata De> Vida. <laughs> but uh Francis Dollarhide like puts it on his eight track um like when the FBI is like still in Illinois, and so it's like a two hour song by the time they get to his house for like the final <laughs> breakdown. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like Tom Wilkinson what he does when he's like recording that special recording for Michael Clayton where he's just like recorded the commercial over and over and over again right. so he can do his little monologue. It's the same kind of thing. Like he's just recorded the track over and over again knowing how long it'll take the police to show up. Yeah, they do a lot of work between the beginning of that song and the end of the song.
0: Will Graham times his jump perfectly with the the guitar solo though. It's such an interesting
1: set piece you know because you just know it's it's like if we have a like a 30 by 20 printing of the like mars surface like somebody's gonna go through that right Yep. like we need we have to fuck that thing up uh and thank god like noonan just goes through a chest first
0: it's incredible (laughs) um okay before we render a verdict on Manhunter, let's tell people quick how we rate movies on B-Real. On B-Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings?
1: I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October.
0: Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa,
1: can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or
0: ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. In my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. No, I think I am higher on this movie than you, which is fine. Um, I really like it. I think it's a good good. Um, I think, of course, there are... Um, there are reasons that it is not as watchable and obsessive and iconic as *Silence of the Lambs*, and that has a lot to do with like its coldness and its distance and its superficiality. Like you have to, you got to find this movie's wavelength in a way that *Silence of the Lambs* is like, come in and have dinner. <laughs> um, but uh, a good, good for me for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I don't mean to mislead you, chance or dear listener. I, I was also. Pretty high on this movie. I think it's a little silly at places sure. in the way that Jonathan Demi would never be silly. Uh, but I also think it's a good good. It's I think most successful as a crime movie, which is really all it's trying to be. You know, there are some interesting sequences that it tries to be horror, like the guy sitting at the the parking lot attendant and the the wheelchair on fire sequence.
0: Oh yeah. Um, When Stephen Lang is, but I
1: don't know that that really like is the jump scare that the movie's hoping for. Um, But I think in terms of it being a crime movie and an adaptation of a sort of middle of the road, gory source material, pulp novel, it's a good, good.
0: Right. Um, There's a, I watched the director's cut for fun. It's just like three extra minutes of grainy, Footage that Michael Mann in nineteen eighty seven was like this is what I wanted it to be, but there is a good scene at the end where William Peterson shows up with a horribly scarred face at the the homes of who are gonna be the next victims in Oklahoma, and they're just like oh it's you oh my god thanks so much do you want to come in for coffee and he's just like oh no I just wanted to see you and I think that's like that's the thing he he is the if you want the scent as as Lecter yells at him like if you want the scent of serial killing, like smell yourself because you just went to these people's house and said you wanted to see them. <laughs> so there's even some cool stuff on the cutting room floor.
1: That's interesting. That plays more with his obsession. Um,
0: yeah.
1: but yeah, I eh, leave it. I think that the movie ends fine when he goes back and look, surveys his, his turtle cage.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's got the, it has the classic man ending of like the ocean is unknowable. It'll kill you. And, uh, you hang out with your wife for a little bit. She doesn't get you, but
1: <laughs> but at least you're together. Yeah, She doesn't get you, but she's very attractive. Right. <laughs> Hannibal, 2001? Let's do it. Living in exile, Dr. Hannibal Lecter tries to reconnect with now disgraced FBI agent Clarice Starling and finds himself a target for revenge from a powerful victim. Mm. See, that I think is a really good IMDb synopsis. That was it well done. touches everything, only like kind of a dangling modifier up front. <laughs>
0: uh, Just one glaring great. grammatical mistake, not three. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like maybe a run-on sentence, but like it, it gets everything in there in one
0: breath. So this is... The follow-up from Thomas Harris in book form and Ridley Scott in movie form to the tremendous success of Silence of the Lambs uh, a decade later. It's funny, this movie was a massive hit that I feel like is just never discussed. And I didn't remember anything about it except for uh, some things... The gory bits. Yeah, (laughs) the goriest (laughs) parts. Um, Sam. But immediately you have... A question that you raised at the top, which I think you have to with Hannibal, which is like, how much Lecter is too much Lecter? Because if you think about the way that he's used in Silence of the Lambs and Manhunter, he is a portal through which the detective walks to understand the killer, to unburden themselves of, you know, the conventions of a seemingly moral society so they can like fully become the shadow of the killer um and then in this movie um and I was like reading some excerpts from the book you're just kind of like in Hannibal Lecter's head as he's just like I I love Vivaldi. Really, really yeah. love Vivaldi. I would <laughs> love
1: to be the docent of a, an obscure museum in Rome.
0: <laughs> Florence, but yeah. Um Florence,
1: yeah, you're right. Which That's all he's trying to do. He's just trying to have like the the last third of his professional life.
0: I was um a little pissy about this movie because they're like... "Where The FBI is like, where is Hannibal Lecter? I mean, you you could get this stationery at any of a million stores around the globe. It's like, you guys not remember in Silence of the Lambs when he kept drawing the Duomo over and over and over again? Does no one want to check Florence for this guy?
1: Yeah. They seem pretty surprised when he mails them a fucking package that's basically like, hey, I'm in Italy. Yeah. (laughs) It's not as... It's not as uh, overt as that. We have a little good evidence working with this one with the the smells. And we get to talk about ambergris for a while. Right. Uh,
0: I loved uh, Hector Salamanca from Breaking Bad. Breaking the smell code there. The person I'm looking for is quite well known. He's killed 14 people that we know of.
1: You ever think he might come after you
0: oh, at least 30 seconds of every day. Hello. Is this Clarice? Oh,
1: hello Clarice. What do you think of Julianne Moore as replacement Clarice?
0: she's not my favorite and I'm not sure that it's her fault. I mean, I think Julianne Moore is a tremendous actor and I love her in lots of different roles. Um, but you know, you're following up you're, you're, you're being the exact same character that we just saw Jodie Foster be. And she, it's just, it's different. She's not as athletic when she runs, which I know is like a gripe, but, um, yeah, it doesn't really feel like she's 10 years down the road necessarily There's a lot of questions about how much she's grown And this is like a little bit of a difficult sort of thing to talk about But um, the movie like uses her sexuality in a much different way Because yes. she like winds up in a cocktail dress at the end And Julianne Moore just gives off a different kind of like romantic and sexual energy as a screen performer Whereas Jodie Foster gives off very little
1: yeah, I think Moore also sort of misreads what makes the Clarice character interesting, and it's it's not because she's also this like weird outsider, like above or below some str- like social strata that she needs to be in. And this yeah. one, is, this movie is so quick to have people like call out maybe like what was enviable about how she could be exploited in the first movie, that character. Um, but in this one, I mean, maybe like you're saying, it it doesn't track to me that this is where she is psychologically uh, as such an outsider. Like you'd think she would either be very like revered after like having a 10 year career that like, why would a local cop be like, I'm not going to listen to you lady. You know, it's is it's the same place she was in
0: ten years yeah, ago. Yeah.
1: It's like has doesn't she have those bona fides? Like, doesn't that isn't her character's sort of unwavering moral compass like what makes her quote unquote successful here? Like I didn't I think almost the movie's too cynical about her purity or something. And then because Moore's really leaning into like I am a beacon, like even though I like shot this black woman holding this baby, like I did it for the right reasons. And like, that's just such a weird place to be, you know, that the movie begins there. It's almost like hard to root for Clarice. And also she doesn't really leave that basement. You know, the majority of the movie is her sitting around making phone calls and like looking at evidence that we've already seen a couple times in flashback that she just discovers it, uh, is not that interesting
0: right the movie almost i like what you say cynical about what a beacon of hope she is there are times including the final note of the movie from her where she almost just like seems dumb the way she's just like i am clarice starling fbi like she's so psyched to still be an agent we're like does this this person have a thought about what's happening here right i don't know yeah, I don't know. I I don't love the I don't love the performance. Um Yeah. And that's like
1: kind of limping in if this is your protagonist here, which she right. definitely is cuz like everybody else in the movie is either so greedy and incompetent as to get themselves killed in spectacular fashion or <laughs> sexist and incompetent so much so that they get killed in spectacular spectacular fashion.
0: You're of course talking about Ray Liotta, who works for the Department of Justice and is just like a huge asshole, and uh, Gary right. Oldman, who is the surviving victim of Hannibal Lecter, who uh, cut off his own face while on poppers. Which what is a popper? I see. This is what I was going to ask you. I'm no drug expert, but I don't think that uh, you know a little pick me up like that will make he you cut like off puts your like own the- face
1: like a smelling salts capsule like under his nose. And then Gary Oldman is down for fucking whatever. And this is what I was talking about earlier. The idea that we like need to make like the bad, bad guys, bad, bad, but like Hannibal's like good, bad or bad, good. However we want to define it (laughs) where like Gary Oldman, like, Oh, do you feel? Don't you feel bad for this guy? Like Hannibal Lecter convinced him to like cut off his own face while he was on the poppers. Uh, but then, like the more you poke at it, it's like, oh, this guy's like a convicted sexual offender of children, right. and maybe he like deserved it a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's so. That's an odd. That's an odd thing that like all of Hannibal's actions now have to be like justified. And then you have Giancarlo Giannini who plays a Florentine police inspector um, who realizes that this uh, potential museum docent is Hannibal Lecter and again in a very forced way instead of just like you wonder what the movie would have done with this character if he had just like tried to arrest Hannibal Lecter but he again has to be like a huge piece of shit and like Google my wife wants (laughs) expensive
1: opera tickets I better catch him myself for three million (laughs) dollars
0: Yeah, which, of course, like the minute that happens, you're like, okay, so this guy's compromised too. Clarice Starling is the only good person in this entire universe. And she's kind of a blockhead.
1: I got to say, like the gore pretty quickly made me consider how watchable this movie is. Um,
0: Gore is not your not your thing. It's icky. (laughs) It's that is canon on this show. That if yes. somebody has fed their own brain, that is icky.
1: That is icky. If someone peeling is, back the
0: brain sac is icky.
1: Yeah. If someone dies from like straight razor to scrotum, like that's too much for me. Sometimes.
0: Right. Sometimes. <laughs> Look at you. You're trying your best. There may be a time, place, a change in the weather where I would be okay with that, but <laughs> most yeah, of the time, I mean
1: people. No. The, the the main character from Braveheart gets disemboweled, and I think that movie's a good good, but sometimes a you disembowelment... Think
0: Braveheart
1: is a good good? Oh, yeah. I think Braveheart's pretty... That may be All canon right. for me.
0: Let's Shit, not get man. distracted
1: right. here. Keep going. What I'm saying is there's a way to tastefully disembowel someone on screen, and this movie... Chooses the the most sickening (laughs) Like cantaloupe falling onto Cobblestone Street
0: Yeah (laughs) Possible ending to it It's true (laughs) Um, But yeah it's For such a Mainstream Movie It's pretty nuts what like Ridley Scott Goes for I mean he's This is the year after Gladiator My guy's just Fucking feeling it this, it feels like he's got all the money in the world. A movie he would make later. Um, what was the budget on this damn movie? Got to be like it 90 million, right? <laughs> oh, good guess. Budget 87 million. Box office 350. My God.
1: They don't make them like they used to.
0: No, they do not spend 87 million dollars to make Gary Oldman look like this anymore. This movie,
1: yeah, one of the cards that this movie plays early on is, let's make Gary Oldman just the most horrendous canker sore of a face person that they can. And, like, you have to – like, didn't Ridley Scott learn, I guess, in a movie that he made afterwards, like, Kingdom of Heaven, like, just – give them a mask or something. Like if the, if they're going to have leprosy or something and their things are falling off, like put Edward Norton in a mask for God's sake. Well, this one, it's like at any possible turn that they can like put on a 120 watt, like halogen bulb, like right above Gary Oldman's (laughs) sick ass face, they do it. And it's just, you know, I don't know about you chance, but the majority of the time that I'm watching movies for the podcast, I'm also consuming a meal And this week, especially Hannibal, was like, huh, what's what's less appetizing than how similar Gary Oldman's face looks to the pepperoni pizza that's, like, right in front of me? Oh,
0: my God. I don't dis. I mean, I I won't disagree on the level of, like, I don't like looking at Mason Verger. Like, that's not enjoyable for me. But I do kind of like the way the movie, like, positions Mason Verger as being... In such bad taste Compared to Hannibal Lecter Like the very, you know The fact that he just continues to look like this And likes to study the way people look at him And then Gary Oldman saying things like I have immunity from the US government And the risen Jesus And nobody beats the Riz Is like This guy This guy's gonna get eaten by If not Hannibal Lecter The boars that he has raised to eat Hannibal Lecter
1: Yes, yes. Uh, when he was a young warthog, etc. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My God, um, I love
1: how like little they make him feel, Verger. Because uh, like Gary Oldman's like a normal sized human, but like when Verger's like without a face and like he's like in this little chair. Like it almost, he like looks like a little Hot Wheels, like kind of going from room to room. And then when he has his uh, inevitable splat, uh, and these this movie loves a good splat, uh, right. he just like looks so frail. And I think that is one of the good tricks of the filmmaking here. Um, but again, not the most entertaining thing to watch.
0: Eyes but Without truly- a Face.
1: He's got no human rights. God race.
0: damn it! I was just gonna say, surely you want to sing a few bars of "God Without a Face." <laughs> uh. Shit. Um, I think that Anthony Hopkins, I have an appreciation for, even when he's moving, and this movie like you know lets him out of the cage. Of course, there's just some like very funny scenes of him just like. Walking around like downing different espressos As he's being tailed and he knows he's being tailed um, But I really love how He he really creates like the illusion Of evil movement in Hannibal Lecter Like when he's not actually moving that much He really, I think as silly as this movie is And as silly as kind of the Hannibal Lecter character Sort of gets when The more and more you like see his deeds play out in real time I think what Anthony Hopkins is doing is still uncopyable because he's just making you imagine that his aura is, you know, dancing all over and he's not moving a lick.
1: Yes. But I don't know, though. I mean, I think this movie breaks the rule of Hannibal's, like, not the... Can't be the most important character on screen. I agree with that. And I think this one, you know, because it's... You know, 10 years later, uh, and Anthony Hopkins is, you know, 10 years older than he was when they made Silence of the Lambs, they just, like, don't quite capture his old man's strength in the same way. Like, I even think that sequence where he's being tailed, where the hunter becomes the hunted, when the guy has been hired to, like, get his fingerprints or whatever, and it's like, this I don't know. Like this guy must know that he's going to get absolutely cheesed. Like there's never any playful. Like oh, maybe he will get his. Blah, blah, blah. It's like no. Like I don't know. It's both that they overplay the movie monsterness of him while not, well, maybe underplaying Anthony Hopkins' physical presence.
0: That's a good. That's a fine. A fine take. Yeah, you're kind of in effete slasher mode here. You right. know that Hannibal Lecter's not going to die the same way you know that Michael Myers has to come back. I had this weird moment where, you know, Hannibal's about to be eaten by the Pumbas. And I'm like, <laughs> what is Hannibal Lecter's, like, relationship to death? Like, is he... Why don't, why don't I know how he feels about his own demise? Which is sort of a you know think like an egg-headed question, but at the same time, like this is a character who is a psychologist by trade. Um, You know, he gets inside other people's heads, and I feel like I don't have the answer to some like basic character questions with him. I mean, he's a narcissist and a sadist by diagnosis, but the more we see of him, the less I think his behavior lines up with original diagnoses too. Right.
1: In this one he's he's too much of just like a an old guy who's just kinda like, Well, you know, if this is the way I go, like this is the way I go. In the Silence of the Lambs, like he does not believe that he can be stopped. He's just waiting for his opportunity to, you know, he's like the Raptors testing the fences. Like he doesn't yeah, yeah. he survival is his only goal, really, and he'll he's willing to wait it out until a moment uh, is presented to him. But yeah, I agree with you. That's an interesting quandary of like how he, like, what a late Hannibal feels like. Um, and of course, we could always make another one while Hopkins is still kicking because Hannibal's still fucking out there,
0: like like ninety year old Hannibal. Right. Real quick, the did you um do you know what the ending of the book is?
1: No. They the, are you talking about that they have sex. Yes. That's what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah,
0: That they, like, become lovers and, like, run away together. And Barney, the orderly, played, I think, pretty interestingly by Frankie Faison in this movie, like, sees them together in Buenos Aires, like, years down the line. Um, And that just, like, first of all, (laughs) it's funny to me, like, Thomas Harris, like, this whole franchise, there are so many imperfections. Like, that is such a more fucked up... Intertwined rats next of sexual dynamics that I think I would have rather watched. But at the same time, like it's also a pretty basic, like, undercutting of like Clarice Starling as like a professional human woman that she like is interested in Dr. Lecter. So it's like everybody kind of has a misread. Or their own, not a misread, because they're allowed, but everybody has their own like hyper-exaggerated read on something that just fell into place perfectly one time in 1991.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think a more interesting narrative here is seeing Clarice almost exactly after the... Events of Silence of the Lamb where, you know, maybe she got lucky once putting this huge case away, but is still deeply resented by her colleagues, so much so that she becomes alienated and like can be a flash in the pan or something. And then like the Jack Crawford character maybe is gone. I mean, he's gone in this one uh, and replaced by horrible Ray Liotta. Um, But maybe that justifies her looking for that mentor Ship that is now gone, and then like she hooks up with Hannibal or something. I don't know. Like the time jump is so weird to me, and I don't think the movie knows what to do with it. And yeah, and this movie, despite its commercial success, really just feels like a seemingly unnecessary sequel. What are you gonna give this bad boy chance?
0: Hmm, a, that's a tough question because I. I admire its sick spirit. I think that some of the performances are good. I like seeing what Ridley Scott does with a hundred million dollars and just like do whatever you want with Anthony Hopkins and he's down for anything. I didn't not enjoy watching it, but also I don't we don't need to break into this whole thing, but the detective story is like worthless. Like Clarice like cracks the case by like googling who's Googled Hannibal Lecter. Like it's not good. In, in like uh, in terms of like storytelling that will draw you back in. Shit, man. I'm gonna say bad good.
1: Interesting. I think that this movie is also a bad good. I, I think there's enough there to be entertained just by this movie as kind of a thriller. Uh, but I think it's laziness about character development, uh, and it's just shamelessly setting up. I mean, it almost becomes like a, a sequel to Saw or something. It just, it's just everything is leading up to some gruesome death more than it's leading up to working a case uh, the way Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs are. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but it's cool. This I mean, it's a like a big budget blockbuster. Uh, movie by people at the top of their game Uh, but sometimes much like Hannibal Lecter uh, it's like could this guy really do all this
0: I think you pinned it this is a horror movie not a crime movie
1: oh yeah and it has some good scares I'll give it that
0: splat you want to talk about 2007's Hannibal Rising the first time I think anyone's ever talked about this
1: I don't know, man. 103,000 people have voted for or have rated this movie online on IMDb. So this movie seems to be – that's more than Parallax View had.
0: <laughs> well, Parallax View never came out because of the government. <laughs>
1: uh, so Hannibal Rising in 2007. I have to say that before we decided on this category, I had no awareness that this this property existed.
0: Oh, you didn't. I remember seeing the posters at the Omaha, Nebraska AMC and being like, "Yep, that's the Hannibal Lecter mask." Interesting, but it's actually not the Hannibal Lecter mask. No, this is a very goofy thing, which is he gets his hands, young Hannibal gets his hands on like some creepy <laughs> like vertical bar masks, which it's then like a, a Japanese
1: the, shogun mask, which has nothing to do. <laughs>
0: In doesn't... the chronology of the Hannibal movies, then, it got me thinking, like, so wait, did the Tennessee State Police, like, know that this guy liked creepy masks? That's where they got it. That's on his
1: rider from being transported <laughs> to the mental institution, uh, was that he needed a Shogun-inspired vertical bar mask, lower half-face yeah. mask.
0: Absolutely. Well done. No bites. Yeah. That
1: is such a silly like Easter egg wink of, oh, I bet he's going to be pretty comfortable when he's incarcerated later wearing this mask because he already seems it, to like it.
0: It's very silly. And also, I think our, both of our big takeaways from this movie is there are not only are there like not very many Easter egg winks to Hannibal, there's not a lot of connection
1: to... Right. One could argue that this movie isn't about Hannibal Lecter at all.
0: The bizarre-ass thing is, again, this is based on a Thomas Harris book, and this is the first time he solo writes the screenplay of one of these, and you're like, this doesn't have anything to do with what you've been working on, man.
1: No, it really is. It explains none of the major attributes of the Hannibal Lecter character we've known and loved for, yeah, 30 preceding years.
0: Except for, you know, he rose a ways. he rose right sure yes he hath risen
1: just like brian cox talked about his dismissal of japanese culture for more traditional romantic and italian art uh this movie (laughs) explains that transition do you remember that do you remember when (laughs) anthony hopkins is talking on tape with clarice about how he had sex with his aunt like this is the aunt that he has sex with
0: the little boy Hannibal died out in that snow. He was raised in a work camp. Let's hear you scream, little master. Ah! What he is now, there's no word for it. Do you have any guilty knowledge of the death of Paul Momun? Guilty knowledge? man who killed my family.
1: He was killed in the woods where your family died. His face had been eaten. Now tell me, Inspector, you lost family in the war. Yes.
0: Did you catch who did it? No. Then we are both suspects.
1: Okay, so this is 2007's Hannibal Rising. After the death of his parents during World War II, young Hannibal Lecter Parenthetically, Lithuanian uh, moves in with his beautiful, parenthetically Japanese aunt and begins plotting revenge on the barbarians responsible for his sister's death. Parenthetically, Nazis. There you go. They weren't even Nazis. They were like Nazi flunkies. They like couldn't yeah, even Lithuanian get to the SS. Rugs.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, played by notable Lithuanian uh, re-syphons. <laughs>
0: Reese Eifens owes Peter Stormare fucking money for this performance.
1: Oh my god! Do you think Peter Stormare was just not available?
0: I don't know. Reese Eifens is Welsh. I really thought he was like Finnish or something.
1: Oh, you thought he was more like Scandinavian?
0: Right. I think Peter Stormare is a Swede. Right. Not with,
1: the point we, is neither of whom are Lithuanian. Right. And I tell you who certainly isn't Lithuanian Is Gaspard Ulliel (laughs) The face of Dior
0: Right Very French
1: Very French Um, And not Deeply French And not even very British Considering Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins Are going to play him in 30 years In the timeline of this movie
0: Right Um so this movie starts out in the height of World War II. Lithuania is trapped right between the the charging German, or the retreating Germans and the charging Soviets, I think. Um, and y- you really, Hannibal Lecter's like seven. And he's got, he lives in Lecter Castle with his nice, rich parents and his cute little sister. And you're Misha, like, okay. with an M. Got it. Thank you. <laughs> and it's literally like, okay, this is a this is an origin story I can wrap my head around. Let's figure right. out why this guy's a psychopath and why he wants to eat people. And you spend about I don't know twenty five minutes in this like flash flashback in the World War II timeline, and um, you know the flunkies end up his parents Lecter's parents end up dead. The Flunkies end up trapped in a cabin with the two little kids. They're all starving. They eat the little sister, Lector. Eventually escapes when the house is like bombed and some of the Lithuanian Flunkies escape too. And he ends up in his old castle, which is now a Soviet orphanage. And he doesn't talk. He's like a mute until the age of 18. Um, or a voluntary mute
1: Right. Well, no, I think he's like fifteen or sixteen when he escapes the orphanage, crosses the Soviet border, and rides the rails into France to live with his Japanese aunt.
0: This is Gong Li playing Lady Morasaki. Um
1: so she's like the husband she's so his dad's brother married this woman. And yeah, and then, but but the but
0: brother's gone. You just dead.
1: missed him. He just died fifteen minutes ago. <laughs> Had you only come a little bit earlier, you could have said, hey, but right now it's just me and a sort of obscure French tax code that's going to at first let me live here and then eventually not. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, and he develops taste almost instantly by virtue of drinking some tea and seeing mm-hmm. some of Lady Morisaki's.
1: Um, and the montage, the almost like copied and pasted montage of Liam Neeson teaching Christian Bale how to be Batman. Uh, but shorter, learns,
0: and worse.
1: Sure. <laughs> shorter and worse. Shorter and worse. But yeah, he like learns how to be extra sneaky because that's what everyone thinks of when they think of Hannibal Lecter is his
0: ninja-like stealth. Yeah. Uh, and then... But the, the really funny thing is like, so shortly after this, he, he takes his first victim. He... Katana butchers this butcher who had like racist, like racistly and sexistly insulted his his aunt. Um, and then like as he does, like after he's done this, he's like, rudeness is an epidemic. And and I I I found myself saying aloud in the room like, did he just rise?
1: Because that's what he rose. (laughs) And I I have to say too, it's when I rose because that's the part of the movie where I was like, I can get behind this. Like, if this movie is going to be him picking off people who were, like, rude to him and his aunt, and that's the narrative of the movie, incredible.
0: But it's just, but he's just instantly Hannibal Lecter.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: It's such a funny...
1: He was Karate Kid a few hours ago, then he had a bad experience at, like, an open market, and now he's Hannibal Lecter, the serial
0: killer. Like you were raised on Soviet gruel and didn't talk for 10 years and now he's like, rudeness is an epidemic. <laughs> like what? Yes.
1: Let me decapitate <laughs> you with this katana that I found in this in this weird sort of uh, shrine that we have in the attic. Now let me ask you this, Chance. At yeah. any point in this movie, the origin story of Hannibal Lecter, <laughs> famed psychiatrist... Or is he a
0: psychiatrist?
1: He's a psychiatrist. He's an MD.
0: As noted
1: in the letter that he wrote to Julianne Moore in the last movie, Hannibal Lecter, MD. Right. At any point in this movie, Hannibal Rising, is psychology or psychiatry even referenced in passing?
0: No. (laughs) You want to ask me if art is ever referenced? Is the Duomo ever visited? The Duomo is definitively unvisited.
1: Well, that's what's so weird to me. And I think what other critics have pointed out in at least the articles I was reading about it earlier was that like, you're taking a character that's famously Western European obsessed and you're making him like Eastern European trash and he not
0: around the Eastern Bloc the entire movie.
1: Yes. And I mean, he's like in France for a bit, but there's like nothing that french culturey about this movie you know it, it has like the patina of like dare i say a movie like triple x or something where it's just like <laughs> this area is lawless and eastern and none and unspecific and here are these uh welsh actors playing goons that need to be avenged
0: listen i mean he could If he talked about, like, Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff, if he was into some of the great Eastern European composers, that would be fine. Can we do some armchair psychology for a second? Please. I think this movie does a hilariously terrible job explaining why he's a cannibal.
1: That he, spoiler alert, uh, ate his own sister and then was seeking vengeance on Reese Ifens and company for their crimes during World War II yeah it doesn't make a lick of
0: sense let me put it to you this way if you go through a traumatic childhood experience where you are forced to eat someone and a bunch of other people eat someone that you love i'm gonna say nine and a half times out of ten that makes you vegan that sends you running away from. yeah you definitely have an
1: aversion to human flesh
0: right so Uh, and when do you
1: have the point where you're like I know this is horrible that my sister's dead, but like this broth is exceptional.
0: Right. Well, that's what I mean. Like there has to be something so perverse about having the lean in reaction to cannibalism. I think it Um, makes more
1: sense to have them be in the lodge And they run out of food and the parents are dead because of the bombing. And like the twist is that he, he eats the sister and develops the taste for human flesh. And then we see him escape to the West to be educated and shed off all this Eastern trash that he's grown up with. And his like, whatever the chip on his shoulder about that parenthetically looking to satisfy his, his lust for, for you know, brain uh, with a white wine sauce.
0: Right. I think that makes sense. I think that uh, this movie fails in the question. It, it fails in, like, the psychopath formation test. Like, this guy was oh, a yeah. nice kid who, like, went through something bad. I could see how it would make him a nihilist. I would see how it could lead to some sadistic... Tendencies, but he it this fails Thomas Harris's own serial killer psych profile, for sure. He doesn't display cruelty in any other context. This is no. almost you know what this movie like weirdly reminded me of. It's like um, it's almost like a young Dracula movie or something where it's like for sure. Let's go explain why this you know one of the most famous literary antagonists. Is actually just like a Dark Avenger,
1: right? And why history can kind of justify the twentieth, a late twentieth-century insanity. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. It's like if you know you had Come and See was like a prequel to uh, <laughs> yeah. Silence of the Lambs or something, and I just don't think that old man boy like ends up being a cannibal killer with a, you know, a taste for the finer things in life. That being said, can (laughs) I say that this movie, if it's not a prequel to Silence of the Lambs, Manhunter, uh, Red Dragon, Hannibal is not that bad of a revenge movie.
0: As we got into like the last 40 minutes, I just didn't know why I was watching it. Like I tried to let go of like, I'm not trying to be a, you know, a uh, chronology sort of, like, franchise nerd here. Like, I'm okay if this doesn't represent my understanding of Hannibal Lecter, but, like, I'm just watching... Then I'm watching just, like, a guy with a shark's face, like, constantly, like, grinning and twisting his neck, like, chasing down Nazis in, like, not bad... Not, like, annoying ways, but not that interesting of ways for... Right. Five minutes?
1: But he's not specifically targeting the kind of people we'll know him to target, either. Like you don't see him like take on patients. Like I almost wanted to see like his his like Fraser Crane upbringing. Like I wanted this yeah. to be the Cheers to the Fraser Crane of the therapist that turns into the serial killer, you know. And it's it really doesn't. That's the the purpose of movies like like this. And it's so weird to make like a B plus you know, historical thriller that is just loosely affiliated with a much more successful franchise in a totally different uh, genre
0: key. It's odd. It's odd. And it like feels a little, it feels a little scared, a little reticent. I feel a little, a little like, Dumb to be in the position of wishing this movie had more. Like, how did Han Solo get his blaster? But unfortunately, that is the position in which I find myself. Because otherwise, I just like I don't know why I watched it. It doesn't. Yes. I, as a self-contained experience, it doesn't work for me. I am gonna give. I don't. I don't think it's terrible. Um, but there's just absolutely no reason I would ever seek it out again. I'm gonna go bad, bad.
1: I think it's. A soft good bad. I, I think that. it's like a competently made historical th- revenge thriller, <laughs> but like if you're going in with the purpose of being like tickled as a fan to see how Hannibal Lecter came to be the way he is, this is not a movie that will weirdly even a- attempt <laughs> to answer that question. Um, you know.
0: Yeah, but, it's interesting, it, and that it's it, got it, some
1: fun ick. Sure. It's interesting that
0: it's free of those questions, but like then be more free, be free to make the, don't call
1: it Hannibal rising, make up another
0: character, call it Lithuanian nephew, Japanese aunt, a love story. And let's get, let's get weird. Like I, I was willing to get weirder with this movie and the movie wasn't, wasn't willing to do so. Especially
1: if you're going to release a two and a half hour uncut version, you've got to, you gotta make it weird.
0: Yeah, I thought it was at the end. Gong Li is not bad in this movie. Um, she doesn't have shit to do after teaching him how to sword fight. Um, no. But I thought it was interesting but when it... Hannibal is very clearly carving a letter or a symbol into Reisivan's chest at the end, and she tries to stop him halfway through. And I'm like, Gong Li, you don't, you don't want to at least see what he's writing? Come on. <laughs>
1: If he's going to write out an M for Misha, like,
0: let him finish. (laughs) He's only two knife strokes into whatever he's writing. You can't stop him now. You should have, could have stopped him two knife strokes ago. I tell you what this movie,
1: like, really, like, their big takeaway from seeing Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal and Red Dragon was, you know, Hannibal Lecter's preferred part of the body to eat, right? It's that upper cheek. He loves the cheek. Absolutely. I don't know that that is justified, though. I think he was just like cheeks were close, like nurse faces were close to him, so he was like, Rah. you know, I don't know that he's like going after cheeks for some symbolic reference to his sister slash her murderers, that both of which he ate, both
0: of whom he ate. I just don't buy it. Like, what what part of having been forced to eat his sister makes him want to eat cheeks?
1: Soylent Green is Misha. <laughs> I really wanted him to have, like, that moment where he's like, fuck, like, I ate Misha? And that's the moment where he's like, Misha was tasty. Right, I gotta eat sure.
0: more people. <laughs> more Misha, please. Do you have anything to say about the Hannibal TV show before we wrap up? Do you like that show? Have you checked it out? I have checked it out.
1: It doesn't do a lot for me. It's very, like visually stylized because it's centered on will graham's sort of and they play hugh dancy plays it almost as like a like a good doctor or something where it's like his mental illness is kind of what's allowing him to view the world in this creepy way right it's like Um, his
0: trauma has landed him on the spectrum or something
1: yes and that allows him and it's a pretty gory show too again like I wish these shows. I wish network television was a little tamer these days. Uh,
0: <laughs> you sound like the kind of guy who's mad Phoebe Bridger smashed her guitar last night. I that loved
1: that when I watched a it on perfectly Hulu. Perfectly
0: good guitar.
1: <laughs> but I like the sparks and shit. I wonder no, if she told anybody about that up front.
0: I'm with you. Um, yeah, it is pretty gory for network TV. Um, I don't love the Hugh Dancy performance either. I. Um, I think Mads Mikkelsen is fascinating. But yeah, I mean, ag- again, the show is called Hannibal, and I think, like, the gravitational influence is off. Like, if you Goog- if you just, like, put Hannibal TV show into YouTube, what you get is, like, Mads Mikkelsen cooking for 20 minutes. And it's, like, it's funny, and it's weird, and I love Mads Mikkelsen, and I think he's such an interesting reimagining of that character. I think Andy Greenwald once said he's just, like, a human straight razor. Um... But like I, I that doesn't make me love the, the show.
1: Right. Maybe I'll give it another chance. chance. Usually
0: it's really cool. Um, all right, my guy, we got to wrap this up. Any, uh, any final words? Do you want to call me from uh, Haiti and tell me who you're having for supper?
1: Yeah, I wish I could talk longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner.
0: Doctor Lecter. Doctor Lecter. For oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. We have security We
1: have no interest Thank you.